You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Check out the Ugly Club Podcast, Tuesdays on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. somewhere around Birmingham, on the edge of Detroit, when the drugs began to take hold. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded, maybe you should drive. And then suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us as the sky was filled with what looked like huge bats all swooping and screeching and diving around the projection booth. I'm Rob St. Mary, and luckily my attorney is here, Mr. Mike White. I am become a transparent eyeball, that's all. Oh, Okay. Anyway, this week, we're looking at a trio of films created by the works and character of the late doctor of gonzo journalism, Hunter S. Thompson, Where the Buffalo Roam from 1980, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas from 1997, and The Rum Diary, 2011. We'll be talking about all three, getting into spoilers and more on this episode, so if you haven't had a chance to see them, uh, you might just want to stop the tape and come back, because, of course, you know, we'll be uh, waiting in the tub. You want me to... Uh... Throw this thing into the tub when uh, White Rabbit peaks. Is that it? Oh, God. I was beginning to think I was going to have to go outside and get one of that goddamn maids to do. Oh, man. I'll do it. Sure. What are friends for? So let's start the conversation here, Mr. Mike. You, me, and the writer, Mr. Hunter S. Thompson. When did you first uh, become familiar with him? Probably when I was in high school and I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when I was in high school. And then I immediately went on to what I thought was the sequel, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, and very quickly got lost in that. Uh, Not really that familiar with the political campaign of 1972. And I can't say that after, I I don't think I ever made it out the other side of that book. I think I had to put it down. So I pretty much have just stuck to the one book by him. And then have always enjoyed the multitude of documentaries about him. He seems to have been uh, a star in quite a lot of stuff uh and i always liked his appearances on letterman those kind of things so that's where i am with hunter thompson i don't think i got into reading any of his stuff until i saw fear and loathing in las vegas in 1997 i remember seeing that in the theater and then i worked at a mom and pop independent bookstore and this was around the time that uh the collections of his letters started to come out those letters collections were big sellers and then we started stocking like everything of his because the film had just come out around that time and i remember reading hell's angels great shark hunt and the one that i really like and i read this later because this was uh, more in the 2000s was uh, the kingdom of fear but we'll talk more about that later so getting into the first film that uh, i thought we'd kind of go in chronological order here and because uh, I have no other way to really, you know, make sense of this whole show in any other particular way. But I thought maybe we'd start with Where the Buffalo Roam. Hidden deep within the snow-shrouded Rockies, a fearsome creature is now awake and hungry. Ah! Oh, he's mine! 
Got a grip, Thompson. He is gathering his awesome powers for one final assault upon an unsuspecting world. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, the legendary outlaw journalist. What are you doing? answers. If you what? did. Yeah, okay. okay. Great answers, huh? What? 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 What do you want to know? Where am I? You're at the hotel, man. They broke the mold before he was born. Uh. Bill Murray is the outrageous, the infamous, the totally glorious Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. You know, I, I hate to advocate drugs or liquor, violence, insanity to anyone. But in my case, it's worked. Be proud, man. You're becoming a famous writer. The famous Dr. Gonzo. Here is where the buffalo roam. Buffalo, took you so long. Jeez, what a nightmare here. As your attorney, I advise you to leave this room at once. You find him. He owes me a cover story and I want to get it. Homeboy to T1. Homeboy to T1. Dang it. Ghost Riders, Atticus Prophets. Fire, blood, revolution. Was he a gun collector? You gotta write a story. I need your help. They gotta struggle. You should be part of it. You left on Tuesday. Today's Saturday. That's weird. The same mix-up happened to me this morning. I thought it was Tuesday. Saturday. Everybody else is here. Abigail! Watch out! Deeper, deeper, deeper! You better get down the hallway over there and throw a muzzle over that fruitcake. Scream all! If you have a taste for total destruction, behold the invincible Gonzo Warrior. Thompson! Thompson! This is a As he takes on truth. Forecast is for bad craziness. Justice. You're off this campaign for good right now. Give me your credentials. Give them to me, Thompson, right now. And the American way. Write about it. Tell the world. Tell them the truth. In the land where the buffalo roam. You psychotic. You've done it to me again. Look at your own good. You don't belong here. Yeah, where the Buffalo Roam, not necessarily based on any one particular Hunter S. Thompson book, or as far as I know, short story. It's kind of credited to just being a based on the works of Hunter Thompson. I think it might be based on the, the life of Hunter S. Thompson. And really, it's very telling that... Bill Murray, who's playing Hunter S. Thompson, is second built in this film because more than anything for me, and I was very surprised when I finally saw this movie, it is Peter Boyle's film. Top build, Peter Boyle, he's really the star of the show. And it's kind of a strange thing that Bill Murray is playing second banana to somebody else. I mean, there's, yeah, there's him as, you know, Bob and what about Bob, but at least he's, you know, he's got the title and everything, but this one, I really thought he was going to be our main character, but I don't know if I, 
I don't know how you felt about it, but I felt like he was second banana material in this one. Well, I mean, at least in terms of billing, because you do get Peter Boyle. And to be honest, at that time, Peter Boyle would have been a bigger draw than Bill Murray. I mean, Bill Murray had uh, Saturday Night Live. And he was just coming off Saturday Night Live at this time. I think he may have left the cast by 79, 80, definitely by 81, because that's when things started to, to slide a bit. Yeah, it is kind of funny that way. And then where the Buffalo Roam for you, do you remember the first time you saw it? I want to say that I rented it when I was in high school, and I just didn't really get into it i don't i remember the opening scene with him sitting there by his typewriter and just kind of doing this almost like wc fields-esque type thing where he's talking to himself and just kind of grousing and he's got that weird speech pattern and that's one of the things when we're talking about hunter s thompson is just the way that he speaks is very interesting and he's got this inherent rhythm to him and i didn't really know what Bill Murray was doing. I knew who Hunter S. Thompson was, but I didn't, hadn't seen any interviews with him. So it was just this kind of strange performance. It's another deadline. I'll just lash together a few raw facts. A little bit of old Negro wisdom. This nightmare is over. Good boy, Bronco. Savage bastard. There, chew on that gibberish for a while, you heartless scum. Seeing it now, I can see what he's going for when it comes to capturing that rhythm and everything. But for me, I was just like, this guy seems kind of off, but I wasn't exactly sure why. I figured drugs were involved, but I wasn't sure why. Again, I wasn't getting everything that I needed to get from the film, and I don't remember carrying on with it all the way through. So it wasn't until just recently that I finally saw the whole shebang. Did you see this um, before or after you read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? I want to say that I might have. I want to say that I saw it afterwards, but I'm not 100%. There was a time there when I would try to watch anything that Bill Murray was in. Tootsie, Stripes, of course, Caddyshack, which was weird because I only saw the Bill Murray parts of Caddyshack for a lot of years. I never actually sat down and saw the entire thing. They they even used to show on the cable channels the BC cartoon that he did a voice for and stuff. So I was pretty into Bill Murray at the time, and I think I just wanted to watch everything, and especially this, the video box for this was the poster image of him with the shirt off, and I think he's holding a beer, and he's got a bat over his head, and just something about the way that he was holding his face kind of reminded me of the Stripes poster, where he's you know doing the I Want You kind of pose. But yeah, just the two things didn't necessarily click that this was the same guy who wrote this other book. It just didn't feel like the manic intensity of 
fear and loathing in Las Vegas was captured by this particular performance or this movie? This movie, when I rewatched it, and it had been, it's got to be at least 15 years since I've seen this one. I remember that this came out because it was one of the titles that Anchor Bay had picked up at some point. And Anchor Bay had this thing with putting out VHS in those lovely plastic clamshell boxes. And they did the thing where this may have been around the same time that DVD was starting to come into its own. Because, you know, DVD has the um, the paper sleeve that goes in the plastic case. And they started doing that with their VHS boxes where they would have this lovely, you know, design in that. And then you could pull it out and there was usually like liner notes basically in there. So, so I remember that this was part of their sort of like more obscure stuff that they had picked up and put out that wasn't the Argento films or the George Romero horror films and things like that. So I remember watching it back then, and I actually kind of liked it. I think I watched it right after Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I knew it was uneven at the time, but I thought overall it was pretty good. And the one thing that I realized watching it this time was I really didn't enjoy it as much this time around as I did when I saw it 15 years ago. And I can't even imagine what the reaction would have been, people walking in cold to this in 1980. Because I don't think he was in the popular culture, like he talked about those Letterman appearances and things like that, and he wasn't that big of a household name in that way. I think Bill Murray does a good job in here uh, as Thompson, given what he has to work with. It just seems to me a rather anemic story that kind of keeps retelling itself to a certain extent, at least in terms of plot. It just starts out with him, as you were saying, behind the typewriter, and he's writing. And then um, he meets up with his attorney, played by Peter Boyle, whose name is Carl Laszlo. And then they proceed to have this uh, courtroom adventure. And then there's they pick up a hitchhiker, which is reminiscent of the other film that we'll talk about in a bit. And um, it's just them getting into adventures. At one point, he's in like a mental hospital, and the attorney comes and gets him out. Probably the most famous scene in, in the film, uh, plot-wise, is the one where he ends up on the college campus and he's supposed to give a lecture. And there's some of his like more well-known quotes in that section. But like I said, Walking in Cold, if you had no real reference for Thompson, other than I think probably in the culture at that time would have been the Doonesbury cartoons, I think you would have been even more confused. The movie sets up the way that they're telling the story, you know, we have uh, Thompson kind of giving an intro in that beginning. And then, you know, the majority of the film is told as a flashback and the way that you're describing it, as far as Laszlo showing up and, you know, rescuing him from this situation. And, and then later on when he is in the press corps, uh, Laszlo shows up again and later on, you know, and in the middle, he shows up a, a, another time when he's trying to cover this uh, football game. Laszlo kind of feels like Hunter S. Thompson's imaginary friend. He kind of feels a little uh, Tyler Durden-esque. Like, here I am in this situation, and then Laszlo's going to come and change my life, rescue me, take me out of this situation, whatever it happens to be. So it just felt kind of strange at times, and especially because Laszlo is such a... He's kind of an otherworldly character as far as you know the big hair and the mustache, the Gene Shalit mustache and all this kind of stuff. So there were times, and I knew he was supposed to be real, but there are times as I'm watching this movie going, 
it's almost like he's not there or he is a fantasy figure, especially because he lives in this kind of strange fantasy world. Like we, when we meet Laszlo, yes, he's this attorney and he's trying to help out all these kids who have, you know, like been arrested for improper search and seizure. And I love seeing a young Craig T. Nelson as, as the cop on the stand and everything. And then, Later on, he shows up as this revolutionary figure, kind of modeling himself after Che or whatever, and that's a, you know a, a strange turn of events. And then he disappears again, and then he shows up kind of out of nowhere, just walking across this tarmac, all dressed in white, and his hair's pulled back and stuff. And it's just like, why is he showing up now? This is absolutely bizarre. But again, it just feels like every time Thompson's in you know this these weird situations that he's kind of created for himself here comes laszlo popping up and you know he changes the situation again feeling very much like the star of the show especially feeling like the star of the show in that opening part with the kids who you know are on trial and all this stuff and it is really like hunter thompson is kind of hanging out in the back again doing his kind of muttering to himself kind of thing talking with some people kind of doing a little bit of shtick but it's really the laszlo show especially in that opening the thing that you bring up is what one of the students raises their hand and question and answer in the college piece dr thompson are you gonna write any more articles about laszlo laszlo my attorney no no he's dead how's that he hasn't been heard from for some time and he's believed dead well, um, it, it always seemed to me that uh, he really didn't exist, that he was a figment of your writing. You couldn't invent someone like Carl Laszlo. He was, a, he was one of a kind. He was a mutant. A real uh, heavyweight water buffalo type who could uh, chew his way through a concrete wall and spit out the other side covered with lime and chalk and look, look good in doing it. He, uh, he was one of a kind. and uh... So you actually voice what someone else in the film voices when it comes to the Laszlo character as well. I probably was just ripping him off. <laughs> but we'll get into who this character is when we get into the, the second film, because I want to explain sort of the differences between not only uh, Bill Murray and Johnny Depp in terms of the, how they both handle the character, but also how Carl Laszlo becomes Dr. Gonzo in the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas film and who actually he's portraying in a way in uh, both Where the Buffalo Roam and also Benicio Del Toro in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But you are relatively right about the sources for this film. The The sources at one point is the book Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72 and one of the more famous pieces in there is the, the bathroom scene with Nixon and was one of the the big standout pieces that supposedly Thompson had the opportunity because he snuck in at this one place to, you know, basically corner Nixon at a urinal and he has this long involved conversation with him and, you know, sort of picks his brain because Nixon thinks he's one of his advisors or some sort of, you know, advisor to an advisor or something like that. And then there are two kinds of people in this country, the doom and the screwheads, savage tribal thugs who live off illegal incomes, burrowed deep out there. No respect for human dignity. They don't know what you and I understand. You know what I mean? You ever play football, Harris? 
Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I played in college. And they're going to get your daughter, too, sir. I've heard the rallies. They like Julie, but Trisha. And they really hate you, sir. You know that one half of the state senate of Utah are screwheads? You know, I was never really frightened by the popheads. Uh, and the potheads with their silliness never frightened me either. But these goddamn screwheads, they terrify me. And then the other places that you start to see elements come through uh, for this book is something like The Great Shark Hunt. And then also the uh, Bruno Kirby, I think, kind of gets a, a nice little piece in here. Of course, more well-known later in the City Slickers films. But in here, he plays a character based on Jan Wenner, who is the publisher and editor of Rolling Stone. And all of the nonsense that he had to put up with when dealing with Thompson in terms of hotel bills and deadlines and, you know, just dealing with this outsized personality. Marty, here's a story. Great, let's have it. He's incredible. Kid raped Thompson, by the we go to pages in two hours. Insane. Laszlo's arrested. Can we talk about this He's some other jail. time? I told him not to worry about it. The last magazine to put up his bail, you'd pay for it. Well, I don't know why you told him that. I can't afford to do Doesn't it. Doesn't matter. He said he didn't want it. Good. He said, uh, you know, forget the money, but if there were any way that Marty could say some sort of personal prayer... Uh, really make a big difference no. to my clients. No, 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 no. Come on, come on now. Don't do this to me, please. Hell, I'll pray with you. Sure. I can't do this. I can't pray. Sure you can. Dig deep. Come on, it's like riding a bicycle. I can't pray. Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Anybody can. Dear God would probably be a good way to start, something like that. Dear God, thank you for everything. Get Laszlo in there. Jeez. Dear God, thank you for everything, and God bless Laszlo, too. And all the people of the world. And all the people of the world, too. Okay, come on, let's have it, please. Let's, let's have it. You don't happen to have a check with you, do you? Uh, you? You'll hear in a bit in the interview with uh, Anita Thompson, his widow. I don't believe that uh, Hunter, although he was involved in this making of this film, was not very happy with sort of the end result. You can kind of see why, because he's kind of this incoherent madman uh, in a lot of ways. And I think part of it has to do with, with the way Murray is given the material to deal with and kind of just, I, I don't know, there's, there's one aspect of the film when I watched it this time that I was like, it, it almost kind of seems like a film that came out where people who were counterculture were still trying to hold on to certain aspects of it as they knew that the end was already here. And it ends up looking kind of pathetic at times. And I kind of felt that way in terms of at least the way the, like you were talking about with the Peter Boyle character at times and certain sort of like revolutionary, you know, holdover stuff from the sixties and things like that. It just seemed really dated and, you know, maybe I'm looking at it through, you know, 2015 eyes as opposed to 1980 eyes. But um, it just didn't seem as fresh and as, as, as good as it could have been. Well, the movie, frankly, it looks very cheap. It just doesn't look 
well directed. It looks like the sets were just kind of thrown together. I mean, the the hotel set just feels like it's on a a sound stage and the hotel and everything it just all kind of feels kind of cheap you know it feels like made for tv movie-esque and some of the beats of the film and everything kind of also share that i mean it's very um what's the word i'm looking for um it's told in very small bite-sized segments uh so it's just it feels like okay we can put it's a, almost like a sketch comedy show in a way kind of yeah it's not sketch comedy right little vignettes of things of like this crazy guy hunter s thompson and the things that he goes through and really it feels like okay we can put in a commercial break here and a commercial break there, and it's not going to disrupt the flow of the film. So it just, yeah, it doesn't really hold together. It doesn't really gel too much. And then when it came to watching Murray in this, like I was reminded constantly of his character in Caddyshack, just the way that he kind of like is a little cross-eyed at times and kind of loopy, you know, and I know that he's definitely, you know, on drugs and drinking a ton in this film or, you know, the character is, but he just kind of reminds me of Carl just being kind of loopy and out there. Mind if I play through? Uh, sure, go right ahead. What are you, getting in a late night or something? Yeah, I was just listening up a bit. Was that uh, your ball I heard rambling through? Yeah, did you see my ball? Hello? Titleist? That's it. Yeah, it's right here. This your place, Carl? Yeah, what do you think? It's really, it's really awful. Well, I have a lot of things that are on order. You know, credit trouble. Uh, I'm an assistant greenskeeper. They say that doesn't mean anything, you know, until I'm the head greenskeeper. Uh, can you give me a ruling on this? Well, sit down. Come on. Make no, I don't, I don't want to stick to anything in here. Uh, well, here, take this thing off. This is dirty. Not, don't go to too much trouble, please. And I know that Bill Murray has said this to other actors, said it to Johnny Depp when he was uh, portraying Thompson, like, be careful when it comes to this role because you kind of get stuck in it. And it's kind of telling that Caddyshack was, I think, either the next role or the role after this because he really did seem to carry that rhythm of speech with him into the next character. That's the thing that when we get into that discussion about how they both handle it and sort of the, the patterns, because watching it this time after not seeing it for 15 years and then also re watching recently. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, there are certain rhythms that they both play. It is like two solid musicians playing the same sort of improv trumpet solo by Miles Davis or something. It's like they want to try and hit the notes, you know? So they're both trying to hit the notes as best they can, and they're coming really close to it. And at times, the rhythms and the pattern and stuff like that seem to feel almost the same. Although I would say that. Murray at times is not as manic in here as uh, where Depp kind of goes at times in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, again, I think he almost would have outshone Peter Boyle had he had that manic quality to him. And really, this does feel for, you know, I'll just say it again. It just feels like Peter Boyle's show, even though he may not be in it as much as Bill Murray. He definitely feels like he's the... He feels like he's more of the dynamic character, really. When you look at 
Thompson in the film, he pretty much stays at the same keel the whole way through, and he's very reluctant when it comes to the Contra type stuff that's going on, and you know, very much like, oh, I'll stay in the car kind of stuff. And there's Peter Boyle out there doing stuff. He's a very much a dynamic character, and really, when it comes to Thompson, yeah, he kind of like fumbles his way into things here and there, but other than you know, and really, when it comes to like the biggest action that he takes in the film by you know uh, dosing Rene Abergenois with some blue pills and then stealing his clothes, that's not that big of an action compared to some of the other things that are going on in the film. So it's just kind of a strange mixture that we have going on in here. I do have to say, you've already mentioned Bruno Kirby, and we've talked about some of the other actors that show up in this. I was really glad to see R.G. Armstrong as the judge in the opening um, scene with uh, Peter Boyle as Laszlo. And we saw him last, I think, in Boss Nigger when we talked about that film. And then he has been in just a ton of stuff. So he was a, he had a great voice was a great character actor. I was really glad to see him show up in this. As soon as I saw him, I couldn't place him in Boss Nigger, and the first thing that came to my mind was, this has got to be a Sam Peckinpah actor. So I went back and looked. I was like, okay, Ballad of Cable Hogue. Okay, this is good. So, yeah, he terrific face, and I thought he really kind of played that off. But again, unfortunately, the scene is kind of a bummer because everybody goes to jail rather than it being this triumphant moment. But he carries that off and, and and the scene also doesn't become too crazy it doesn't become the circus that i think that the filmmaker probably wanted it to feel like instead it's like laszlo kind of rallying the troops and every once in a while hunter thompson in the back like making a snide remark and they weren't necessarily that good of a remark and him showing up with the ice bucket and the bloody mary and all this stuff i was like really it could have been more crazy yeah i think it would have been better if they would have picked one thing yeah like one story and just followed the one story through instead of it with the bookends where it's him at the desk typing and writing and all this stuff at the beginning and then the same at the end it seems more like this is him writing the memoir of his friend who he says has died mm-hmm. and um, trying to kind of put it in context for himself. Or you even get the feeling that maybe he's writing this for his editor over at Rolling Stone. So this is him trying to explain who Laszlo was and, and who he was to him. And, and that's, like as you were saying, part of the reason why I think he has a bigger role in there than and has more to do than what Bill Murray has to to do in the film. Well, it's kind of a shame too, that it's not actually Rolling Stone, that it's, I, what is it? Blast is the name of the magazine. So it's just like, Oh, you know, okay. I understand you couldn't get the rights and all this kind of stuff, but it just feels like we're playing around with reality versus fiction, almost a little too much. Like I know when it comes to Thompson, you live in that gray area between reality and fiction, but just the mixture of it just didn't feel like it really kind of gelled as far as this fake magazine with this real writer, some real events, you know, talking about the fear and loathing on the the campaign trail. Like some of that stuff is supposedly based on reality, but not quite. So it was just it just didn't necessarily add up in in the right amounts. 
As I said in the beginning, I think it's a film that if you're a fan of Thompson's, you should watch if you're interested in being kind of a completist. And it's also interesting to watch it against the next one that we're going to talk about. But I think on its own, if it was the only film that was ever created about him or out of any of his work, I think it really does kind of a disservice uh, to him. And then and then also the uh, the side characters, or in this case, uh, maybe the main character <laughs> that Peter Boyle plays. So um, it just doesn't quite work as well as, as I really wanted to. I'd, like I said, when I was younger, in my early 20s, I felt maybe that it worked better. But then again, I wasn't looking at film the way I am now. So um, sadly, where the Buffalo Rome doesn't work quite as well for me as the second film we're talking about, which is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Just want me to go to Las Vegas at once. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Tape recorder for special music. Get the hell out of L.A. for at least 48 hours. We're all set. If I could just get, get you John Hancock, you're on your way. Yeah. Listen, you're going to be real careful with this car, right? Oh, yeah, man. We can't stop here. This is bat country. God damn, I never rode in a convertible before. Get out. Why not? Is this not a reasonable place to park? Reasonable? You're on a sidewalk! Fire! What's the score here? <sighs> Lucy paints portraits of Barbara Streisand. God bless. Hell, look what you're doing to your car! <gasps> Someone should stop that! Police, are you people crazy? Pictures presents the story that defined a generation. Johnny Depp. Benicio del Toro. Let's get down to brass tacks here, man. How much for the ape? Fear and loathing in Las Vegas. A Terry Gilliam film. All right, now I've got to go. Radio, man, radio. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I got such shit about this movie. <laughs> uh, when did this one come out? 1998? 97, 98. 98. Yeah. So 1998, I'm just going out with uh, the woman who would eventually become my wife. And it's her birthday. Hey, let's go to the movies. Oh, hey, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is playing. So I end up taking her to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Terry Gilliam's masterpiece look at Hunter S. Thompson and adaptation of the story on her birthday. She wasn't happy with me. She was not real pleased with the movie overall, but the fact that it was taking her to this particular film on her birthday didn't necessarily work for her. So I still get a lot of crap about this. On my birthday... <laughs> I can't believe she did it on my birthday. 
I remember seeing this one with my friends at the Star Gratiot Theater, and we were just blown through the back wall of the cinema. I think I was the only one who was completely straight going in. Maybe my friends had had a little something uh, in the car. And for me, just from the opening and that quote that's on the screen and the use of my favorite things with the protest footage and all of that, and then, bam, you're in the car, you know, driving to Vegas at top speed. It really just comes at you like a shot. And from my mind, it's a pretty faithful adaptation of the book. I really don't remember it kind of changing too much. I mean, really where you get the uh, the, the flavor is sort of in how Gilliam presents this world to us and what he puts in, what he decides to emphasize uh, and how he decides to emphasize it. I mean, the the original piece was written in 1971 by Thompson, who had been on assignment for a sports magazine because he had been writing originally. He was writing for Scanlon's, and in 70, I think it was, he wrote the Kentucky Derby as a sick and depraved event, I believe, or something like that. I can't remember the exact title. And that's what got him some attention as a sports writer. He had been writing sports before that. And then a few years before, I think it was in the late 60s, I think it was 67, 68, he wrote a book on the Hells Angels, which was the, the first introduction, maybe even been 66. So he was writing sports, and then he got this assignment to go cover. The Min 400. It's the richest off-road race for motorcycles and dune buggies in the history of organized sport. Fantastic spectacle in honor of some fat back grocero who owns the luxurious Mint Hotel in downtown Las Vegas. At least that's what the press release says, anyway. Well, as your attorney, I advise you to buy a motorcycle. How else can you cover a thing like this, righteous? Well, we're going to have to draw it up on our own. Pure gonzo journalist. And what happened when he went there with his attorney was that all of this other adventure came out of it, and he decided to write that, and he wrote it, and it was published in two parts, originally in Rolling Stone, and then it became the book. It's actually, from what I remember, a pretty fast read. I think it's only maybe, what, 150 pages or something like that? But it's ideas, and like I said, this is where I think where the Buffalo Rome could have been a stronger piece, is if they would have picked just one story and followed that one story, because there's a lot of twists and turns in here, but there's a lot of thematics in the story that sort of look at the concept of in 1971, what the whole anti-war movement meant and sort of how it didn't really accomplish anything for the idealist that was Thompson. Yeah, you are totally right. As far as this being a quick read, I think I actually sat down and read this whole thing in an afternoon and it kind of demands that of you, I mean, it, this book will reach out and grab you and throttle you because it is just so manic and so just it, it, it wants you to be there with you. It takes you along on this ride. You are one of these characters with this narrator who's just, you know, just taking you by the, 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 the lapels and just shaking you with as much energy as they possibly can and just smacking you around and telling you this story. By the end of it, you just feel like you know, you're know you completely exhausted. It feels like you've been on this trip with this guy and trip in all the senses of the word. So it is just, it, it's amazing. I mean, you go through all of these different scenes, 
all these different drugs, all the different effects of the drugs, all the different areas that you're going in, a lot of flashbacks, a lot of side stories, all this kind of stuff, but it all just gels so well. And the thing that I was talking about with Where the Buffalo Roam, where it's told in these kind of vignettes and everything, that they didn't necessarily hold together when it came to that story. They come together so well in this story, and they just... You know, everything builds on top of one another. You might be talking about something completely different over here, talking about Hunter Thompson's first acid experience, but there's a reason why that piece is there, and it just fits together like a puzzle that all these pieces need to be there and tell one big story that just really just pulls you in. And the way that Gilliam shoots this thing, again, takes you... On this trip, you see things through Thompson's eyes in a lot of ways. There's a lot of POV shots. And then even when you see Thompson, you know, telling you this stuff or or just experiencing these things next to Thompson, you are feeling the same kind of trippiness that he's feeling and just kind of going along with his experiences. And it feels very immersive. One of the things that you get is what I'll call the pre-story and then the story. And most of the pre-story is set up in the car as they're driving. Once they pick up the hitchhiker played by Toby Maguire, and he starts to tell him this whole story about how they end up on this road to go to Vegas. And you end up with these um, multiple layers of how he picked him up, how they decided to go, why they decided to go, what was the point. And there's little... There's there's little tells and little visual. There's so much visual information in a Terry Gilliam film, as uh, anyone anyone will know. And I mean, even go back to his animations on, you know, Monty Python. I mean, there's so much stuff packed into those things that you get little clues and ideas as to what Gilliam is trying to say and try to bring out these thematics. Because I think that this is one of those films. I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and and coincidentally, another film that came out about a year later, in 99, Fight Club, often seemed to get um, attached to by young males in their late teens and early 20s. And they're just blown away by aspects of it. But I don't think they really can comprehend at that point maybe some of the thematics. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's lurid. Yeah, it's, you know, violent. And there's all these drugs and, you know, there's lizards and all this crazy stuff. But really what thompson's trying to talk about and it's encapsulized in the wave speech which has been dubbed the wave speech is him talking about 1971 looking back on all of the promise of the civil rights era of the 60s and the anti-war movement and all of that stuff and here he finds himself in vegas which is sort of this like moth light that attracts the middle America, which it still does, which is what, you know, my first time going to Vegas was earlier this year. And it's sort of this place where if you're a workaday guy from the Midwest, it's like where you go, right? Like we go on our trips to Vegas. So he sees it as just this amalgamation. And, and in 1971, it was not as, you know, Vegas was not what Vegas it is today, but just this sort of like bringing together of all of the the, the things that distress him about America <laughs> in a lot of ways, just, just the, the, like the greed aspects and just garishness and like plastic quality and just sort of this aspect of people trying to not engage with the world. They're trying to shove it away. 
What was I doing out here? What was the meaning of this trip? Was I just roaming around in a drug frenzy of some kind? Or had I really come out here to Las Vegas to work on a story? Who are these people? These faces? Where do they come from? They look like caricatures of used car dealers from Dallas. And sweet Jesus, there are a hell of a lot of them at 4.30 on a Sunday morning. Still humping the American dream. That vision of the big winner somehow emerging from the last minute pre-dawn chaos of a stale Vegas casino. 20. And in the wave speech, he kind of talks about if you if you look with the right kind of eyes, you can see where the wave broke and went back. Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Has it been five years? Six? It seems like a lifetime. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. But no explanation. No mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world. Whatever it meant. There was madness in any direction. At any hour, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right. That we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. A lot of the stuff that comes through Thompson's writing can kind of be found here going forward. I mean, Hell's Angels is a little more straightforward, but really Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas forward sort of sets these ideas in place when we talk about his writing and also his feelings about specifically Nixon, which we do see to a certain extent in Where the Buffalo Roam and sort of sees him as this great sort of like evil father figure that is uh, leading America around by the nose. Yeah, we've talked so much on this show about the importance of 68 and where that was in other countries. And it was the same thing when it came to what was going on in America at the time. And just to use your word, the promise, you know, we, it felt like there were strides being made, you know, in, in terms of civil rights, in terms of war protesting, all this kind of stuff. It really felt like 
the youth of the nation was being empowered. You know, we're breaking out of this kind of Ozzy and Harriet mold and everything. We've got our own culture. We've got our own music. We've got our own way of dressing, all this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, then that wave hits, you know, like some people say, you know, it's, it's Manson, it's Altamont, it's all these things right there. And then this really does deal with that aftermath and what where are we at where are we going the disillusionment of all this kind of stuff one of the reasons why you and i are always talking about 70s films is because of that disillusionment and the kind of the way that arts either worked against or embraced that kind of darkness of the 70s the what we saw being betrayed constantly you know seeing JFK shot, seeing MLK, seeing RFK, all these people being killed and seeing the war continuing on and just feeling completely powerless at some point. And that's what we are really embracing when it comes to 70s cinema. And I think this really kind of does a perfect job of encapsulating so many things, the the drug culture, the youth culture, and coming at it from this madcap narrator who just, even though he is partially insane, it's kind of that whole lunatics taking over the asylum kind of thing. He really has a perfectly clear vision when he is telling us this stuff, even though it's through this broken lens of, you know, his mind, his perception, but yet he's got the the truth in all of this mixed together. And I think that it just really works that way that we get him as this kind of, I don't know, the, this voice of a, a lost generation now looking back and just saying, what the hell just happened? Well, especially when you consider that this was 71. So this would have been part of the re-election of the president in 1972, which of course the committee to re-elect the president was the Watergate conspiracy. And also he does go on to do the McGovern-Nixon campaign in 1972 in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. So consider that all of this stuff is out there. And of course, that was the Nixon landslide. So he's writing about his disillusionment like a year and a half before Nixon wins like all 50 states. Or <laughs> he'd win like 49 or something like that. It was it was the biggest landslide victory in like political history in the United States. Which is just always the icing on the cake to Nixon doing all of these dirty dealings, double crossings, backstabbings, all of these things to ensure that he's going to win this election. And it didn't mean diddly fucking squat when it comes to this. He didn't need to do anything to rig the election. He won by a landslide despite his best efforts. You know, it is just really blows my mind when it comes to this kind of stuff. Nothing that he did made any impact on the election other than costing him the presidency just a few years hence when this whole thing blows up in his face. I mean, the guy just fucked himself royally. And it's, it, it is great that we have this kind of prescient, you know, discussion of what's going to happen with this stuff. And just, you know, that it just kind of encapsulates everything that it was Nixon who kept talking about the, the silent majority, the silent majority and the silent majority finally speaks. They're behind Nixon a hundred percent, but then he had gone and just fucked himself in the ass. And it just was horrible for him. It was great for the country that we found out what kind of crooks we had in power. But again, then 
here comes the seventies where it's just like, can we believe anything that we hear from anybody? And that's the thing that if you want to get more into sort of like Nixon theory, you can listen to our episode on, on secret honor, the, uh, on Robert Altman film that we did a couple of years ago, but there was, um, Paul Krasner, who used to publish uh, The Realist, which was a uh, satirical magazine, he had often said that years from now, decades from now, he's like, Richard Nixon will go down in history as a folk hero because we, he has given cynicism back to the American public because before him, most people felt that, you know, if, if you took a survey, by and large, of people and what their view was of their elected officials— most of them would have said, oh, and, you know, they're decent, hardworking people who are looking out for our interests. Now, this year, Congress is at, what, 9% approval rating? So in like 45 years, we've gone from people are decent who we elect to we don't trust anybody. And I believe that it's not only just elected officials, but I think it extends to all levels of the government. Now, it's not to say that they don't give you reasons not to trust them at times, but it just seems like that sort of negativity and cynicism kind of came with Watergate. It came with the end of the Nixon era and maybe did pull the mask off what was always there. And that, I think, is part of the reason why every time there's a scandal, it's gate. It's this gate. It's that gate. It's, you know, they're, they're always tacking on gate to any sort of government scandal, because in our minds, it reminds us of what happened then. Right. Yeah, now it's rather than being surprised by the next political scandal, it's just a matter of when. When's it going to hit? And what might it be distracting us from? You know, what what outrage, and I put outrage in quotes, is going to distract us from the latest report on government torture or these kind of things. And, you know, oh, my God, um, Hillary used her own email account. Oh, geez, you know, that that's a scandal. Let's fill up the airways with that stuff while we, you know, push this other stuff off to the corner over here. So now it's like a false sense of outrage when the outrage of... <laughs> the the outrage of the president of the United States lying to you, the guy who had this landslide victory, so he had all of these people behind him, and to find out that he's a lying cheat really is a you know a surprise and a shocker. But now it's just a matter of like, oh, this is just noise. You know, the the outrage is noise, and it, it just it, it's so foreign to me to remember a time when the outrage was real. Well, speaking of outrages, when we talk about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, there was one thing in relating the production history of this film that uh, was kind of an outrage, I guess. And that was, there was an original director and a script created. This led to a little bit of uh, outrage between uh, two directors who uh, I'd say we both respect, one of which has been on the show, Mr. Alex Cox. Yeah, this was one of those situations that kind of reminds me of when we talked to uh, Keith Gordon a few years ago. He had uh, worked on a screenplay and worked on a film, which was based on a movie. And as he's, you know, you have to always do your arbitration and all this kind of stuff, make sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted when you are, you know, putting a film together and especially putting together the credits and all you know contractual obligations are are set and a very similar thing happened to keith as what happened on this movie i think where somebody had done a adaptation of this same 
book that he was now doing a a, um, a a film of, and really they had no idea that the first adaptation existed, and it wasn't even really that close of an adaptation. But in this case, I will say that I've gone back and I've read the screenplay by Todd Davies and Alex Cox for their version of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and it captures the same beats, it uses the same dialogue of what Gilliam ended up doing, but in this case, you had two very faithful adaptations of the same source novel, so it really... It's this weird situation, man, where you have Gilliam and his co-writer, Tony Grissoni, working on their screenplay. And then as the movie's, you know, getting ready, they're like, you know, here's the situation where Cox and Davies had already done an adaptation. Theirs wasn't necessarily being used, but it was, you know, through all the arbitration with the WGA and everything that they were given credit for this even though Gilliam's like, I've never read their screenplay, but since there was so much stuff in the adaptation that the first guys did, it was determined that their names needed to be on this movie that they really had no involvement with. But again, same source material. So it's just one of those weird WGA things, you know, and it's like, it's a frustrating situation all the way around. Cause I think Cox was frustrated by this whole thing, and especially, I don't know how far along the pipe he got with this project, but obviously he didn't direct it after all, so he's frustrated, Gilliam's frustrated, nobody's happy at the end of the day, hopefully these guys have kind of worked out their differences and everything, but nobody's real happy about the credit situation, at least at the time. As you were saying, it has all to do with the percentage of changes that you make when you get credited on these things with the Writers Guild and arbitration. And if you're doing a faithful adaptation of a book, makes it kind of hard, <laughs> you know, and especially one that's so sort of like, as we were saying, tightly plotted and relatively short. It's not like this thing is, oh, um, Battlefield Earth. Right. You know, bad example, but like Battlefield Earth's like 1,200 pages or something, and the film is only the first 300. So you could write probably 18 different scripts out of that book, depending on what you want to accentuate and what characters or, you know, how you want to put it together. But this is relatively simple. It's two guys in a car, and they're going to Las Vegas, and they have all these weird adventures, and there's people that come in and out. And, you know, it's it, it's pretty, like I said, when, when I read the book, after I saw the film, I'm like... Hey, you know, the, the only thing you can really complain about when it comes to the film is, well, you know, I would have done that scene this way, or I would have staged that differently. Or, you know, I remember reading, uh, I think it was the Roger Ebert review, and he said that the problem that he had with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and I think this may also show, because I didn't know this at the time, his own issues around alcoholism that became rather well known in later years with Roger Ebert was he talked about in the review how... It's the difference between hearing someone relate a story or reading a story about a crazed alcoholic and actually seeing it presented. And he said that reading it or having someone tell you a crazy you know, scenario is one thing. But actually watching the film for him was, was difficult because he felt, and, and I feel this is much more in uh, Where the Buffalo Roam than at times in Fear and, Lo- Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, is that you almost have this feeling of sympathy 
for the people that have to deal with the hurricane that is Raul Duke and Dr. Conzo. I mean, they're making people's lives harder by the way that they treat them, whether it be the, you know, the, the valet or the, you know, room service guy or something. I mean, it's like everybody who comes in contact with them as a story, if someone relates it to you, oh, that's funny. Like, that's a funny story. But actually seeing it is at times it can seem rather cruel. Right. I've talked about before that I have trouble sometimes when it comes to drug use in movies, you know, things like The Doors, where I'm watching Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison and I just want to be like, dude, fucking clean up your act, you know, just get a grip. Things aren't that bad. Quit your drinking. You have talent. You need to, you know, respect yourself and respect those people around you. Just fucking clean up your act, you know, and that's how I feel a lot of times in real life. And then when I'm watching movies where there are people that are abusing drugs, I feel the same way. For some reason, I didn't necessarily get that with Fear and Loathing, and it's the rare film that I can watch where there's a lot of drug use, and I mean a lot of fucking drug use, and not have that kind of like school marm reaction to stuff. And I don't know what that difference is, and I should probably examine that a little bit more. Maybe it's the overuse of drugs or the reactions to the people or whatever it is, but something about it, something about this film, I'm able to tolerate that. And if anything, kind of embrace it and just be like, okay, I understand this. I know what's going on. And, you know, I don't feel like I want to shake Hunter S. Thompson and Dr. Gonzo and, and just say like, guys, clean up your act here. You know, you got something to do. You got, you got a story you got to tell. It feels like they are reacting to the insanity of the world. The only way they know how. And the other thing is too, is that they're and and maybe this is what also works for it is that they're using these assumed names. So, and even Thompson has said uh, in interviews, people asked him, well, did all of that happen when you went to Vegas? And he goes, if it did, we'd be dead. <laughs> so there's a certain level of ill reality in here when it comes to the fact that he's using the name Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo, which are obvious, you know, fake names. The only time that you get any reference to Thompson is when there's this whole scene about a telegram where the guy runs out and he's about to leave and he goes, there's this telegram. It's for someone in your party named Thompson. And he gets into this big discussion about, no, 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 this is, you know, this is journalism speak. This is from Thompson, not to him and all this. <laughs> and, you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's afraid that he's going to get arrested and end up in, in prison, which he has a great line in there that I, that I always like to quote. Many fine books have been written in prison. <laughs> so it <laughs> just kind of realizes, you know, and, and they know that they're, they're, basically putting on this big this big thing but this is what we talked about before about the idea of um Werner Herzog mm-hmm. and I'll I'll quote Werner Herzog here when we're talking about Thompson to a certain extent and sort of Herzog's idea of the ecstatic truth uh, a deeper truth when uh, and and that's what uh brings me in such uh, opposition and rage against the so-called cinema verite because the cinema verite uh, believes and probably is confused about the distinction between fact and truth. It's a, facts are something very superficial and, and, and they uh, ultimately get the accountant's truth. So there's an accountant's truth and there's something much deeper. And you will find that in great poetry... 
when you listen or when you read a great poem, it will occur to you very abruptly that there's a deep, enormous truth in this poem. And, and you, you feel like illuminated. And you don't have to analyze and you don't have to read uh, uh, lots of literature about this very poem. You just know it in instantly. And why do you know it? Because there's an ecstasy of truth that is in this poem. And in cinema, you have this as well. And I think that Thompson's writing at times can be fanciful and it sometimes is grounded in a sense of reality. But you can get to these larger truths through the fact that it is dealing in this sort of other concept, if that makes any sense if I'm explaining it correctly. I can totally get what you're what you're saying and I'm thinking back about what you're talking about with the reactions from the other people that are around these two kind of hurricanes floating through Las Vegas and comparing that to something like where the Buffalo Rome where you have the very distraught guy down the hallway what was it Mr. Black or Mr. Brown I can't remember the character's name and he's you know there's so much noise coming from this room and you go in the room and it's very much like a like a Marx Brothers kind of thing and the Marx Brothers kind of got away with being a-holes to other people because they were this kind of manic ball of energy and they were always showing up the streets, you know, and they, you know, they were fine, you know, Groucho was fine insulting Margaret Dumas as much as you wanted to and you never got the, the thing like, oh, he's just being so mean to her. Why is he being so mean? Because there was just this she just kept coming back for more. She was kind of oblivious to, you know, she would get the insults, but just kind of, you know, become flustered. And she was the symbol of, you know, arist- uh, aristocracy and all this kind of stuff. And I guess that's part of the thing is that I'm okay with people being dicks to aristocrats and everything. But when it comes to a guy who's just trying to do his fucking job, then it gets a little much. Like, there's the thing in where the Buffalo Rome where, isn't this funny, Hunter S. Thompson is just abusing all of his privileges as a journalist. And he's ordering all this food and drugs and drinks and all this kind of stuff and just destroying this hotel room where I'm sitting there thinking, well, they, they, there people got to pay for this and people have to clean this stuff up. And Bruno Kirby's going to get footed with this huge bill and everything. And then I watch something like uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And I guess it is because it is past all of everything and everything is in this kind of like weird dream state that I don't necessarily think about the hotel bills and the, you know, this kind of stuff. It's just, it, it's moved past that. It's gone into more, I don't know, the hangover territory where things are crazy and we don't necessarily have to worry about the consequences. Well, the reality of Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo is obviously they're based on real people. Raul Duke, sort of a, I guess, amped up version of Thompson. And Dr. Gonzo, though, I don't think most people know. And this is where I was going to pull forward the Carl Laszlo character from Where the Buffalo Roam and sort of explain who Carl Laszlo is who Dr. Gonzo is, because they're based on a real person. And that person is a Chicano attorney by the name of Oscar Zeta Acosta. Thompson met him, I think, in the late 60s in L.A., and at the time he had been defending um, young Chicanos and Latinos from, of all things, imagine it, police abuse. 
and was doing a series of lawsuits against the police because of their treatment of, uh, of these young guys. And there was also a murder case. I believe it was someone got killed by police or there was some sort of murder case that Thompson was covering for someone. I don't know if it was for a Rolling Stone or if it was uh, for another magazine. So him and Oscar got along because Oscar was part of the, uh, basically the Brown Power Movement is what it was. You know, it was sort of the equivalent of the Black Power Movement where it was Latinos and Chicanos and, and all of that who were out asking for their rights and, and things like that as well. So he was he became sort of a um, an organizer in that. And because he was an attorney, that allowed him a certain amount of power. If you get the Criterion edition of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas on the secondary disc, there is a, I think, half hour of a video of Oscar Zeta Acosta reading some of his writings. Uh, he had written several books. A lot of people have heard of the East LA 13, Los Tres, the Biltmore, uh, you know, all the big cases. Not too many people hear about the little cases. In my uh, book, La Cucaracha, El Rebelde de las Cucarachas, uh, there's in chapter eight, there's a story of a little case that we had. And it concerns a it concerns a, a kid that was murdered by the sheriffs. It's chapter 8 of the book. It is early one morning when the family of Robert Fernandez arrives. The sign outside the basement office only announces La Voz de Huitzliopochtli. That's La Raza newspaper, for those that can't remember. But these strangers come in asking for me. Through the grapevine, they have heard of a lawyer who might help them. Nobody else is around. It is just them and me. We gotta have someone to help us, Mr. Brown. The deputies killed my brother. A hefty woman with solid arms and thick mascara burnt into her skin is talking. She says her name is Lupe. She is a spokesman, the eldest child in a family of nine. The woman beside her is the mother, Juana, an old nurse. Juana is still in shock, sitting quietly, staring at Gilbert's paintings hung on the wall. John, Lupe's husband, sits on her other side. His arms are crossed, bright tattoos over corded muscle. He wears a white t-shirt and a blue beanie, the traditional garb of the Vato Loco, the Chicano street freak who lives on a steady diet of pills, dope, and wine. He does not move behind his thick mustache. He too sits quietly as a proper brother-in-law, a cuñado who does, not, who does not interfere in family business Unless asked. Now, where sort of fiction and reality sort of cross here is in where the Buffalo Rome, there's a response that Thompson gives, Bill Murray gives to the kid who says, I don't think he's real. And he goes, no, he's died. We don't know where he is. That is actually true. Because around 1974, I think it was, he went out on this boat in Mexico and was never seen from again. I don't believe it was foul play. I think it was just like bad weather or something. So he ended up getting lost at sea and was gone. So like I said, the um, friendship came together in terms of him covering him as a subject for, for pieces. And then they became friends, obviously, around their, their similar politics. So sort of an interesting character. I don't think a lot of people know about Oscar Zeta Acosta, if you're not like up on Chicano history or something. <laughs> But um, he's definitely an interesting guy, and I was uh, I was talking about this tonight with someone, and I said, you know, someone ought to 
you know, there's all been all these documentaries on various people, and I'm like, that guy's life would probably make a pretty interesting documentary. There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live and too rare to die. In Where the Buffalo Roam, it's this kind of real uneven kind of thing where Laszlo feels like he's the main character and he's kind of overshadowing Hunter S. Thompson. It's kind of easy. I mean, especially like physically, Peter Boyle, very you know, impressive kind of guy, you know, very tall, very, you know, um, large man. I mean, he played Frankenstein for God's sakes in fear and loathing in Las Vegas, Johnny Depp's character, his performance is so big, so broad that he could overshadow in a metaphorical sense, the Benicio del Toro, Toro character, the Dr. Gonzo character, but I think del Toro gives such a good performance. It's an understated performance, but it's so good that I think that he is not necessarily, well, he's in danger of being engulfed by Johnny Depp, but I think he stands his ground and I think he does a really good job of being a major player in this film, which could become just the Hunter S. Thompson, Johnny Depp show. It could be, you know, all Raul Duke all the time, but really Dr. Gonzo is a major character in this film. Well, the one thing that Del Toro did for the the film and, you know, everybody gives uh, Robert De Niro props for <laughs> Raging Bull was he put on 60 pounds yeah. to play Dr. Gonzo. And in the interviews, he talks about like how you do that. And he did it to play the character. Now, remember just a few years before this was 97, 98 when this came out and was, you know, shot, look how thin he was in the usual suspects, just like two, three years before. So the fact that he put on like 60 pounds to do this film, then the other aspect that I see is that the one thing, like you were talking about him being understated is that most of the time when he explodes, it's violence. If Duke is about sort of like doing a bunch of drugs and like looking around and just being kind of freaked out by the world at times, Gonzo kind of sits there, takes it in. But when he's going to explode or do something, it's usually with violence. Like he's pulling this gun out. There's the scene in the hotel elevator where he pulls this knife out on the guy and sort of like puts it in his face. Uh, there's all of this stuff about. You better be careful. Plenty of vultures out here. They'll pick your bones clean before morning. You fucking poor. Even when he's like kind of in his drug and love stage, he's like chasing Duke around the hotel room saying he wants to carve a little Z in his forehead. So with this big ass hunting knife. So it's always his like manifestation just seems to be this manifestation of, of anger, violence. Because we get the feeling that all of that comes out of this like discontentment with the world, where to some extent, Duke's discontentment leads him to get into substances, but and it's not to say that the Gonzo character doesn't get into substances, but it seems like him, his kick is, you know, violence to a certain extent. Well, and I especially like him just kind of egging on the situation. There are so many times where it's like, as your attorney, I advise you to blah. And it's 
it's almost always escalating the situation. You know, you're going to need a really good car. You're going to need this. You're going to need that. And just kind of, he's, you know, that voice that's kind of egging on Raul Duke through so much of it. Sounds like real trouble. You're going to need plenty of legal advice before this thing is over. Oh, yeah. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Mm-hmm. And you'll need the cocaine. Tape recorder for special music. I got pulled go shirts. Get the hell out of LA for at least 48 hours. Blows my weekend. Because naturally, I'm going to have to go with you. And we're going to have to arm ourselves to the teeth. Well, why not? I mean, if the thing's worth doing, we're doing right. Johnny Depp does a tremendous job in this movie. I really admire what he did with this performance. And I have to say, like, Johnny Depp, unfortunately, has kind of become a little bit of a joke. You know, I don't know when that necessarily happened, because there were a lot of years where I just respected the hell out of this guy. Like, I think I've told this story on the show before. The whole idea of, you know, working at this movie theater and Crybaby comes out. And all of these young girls are coming into the show because they want to see, you know, hunky officer Tom Hansen from 21 Jump Street. They want to see him in a movie, not realizing what Crybaby is, you know, not realizing who John Waters is. And just these girls coming out and just white faces, you know, just not understanding what the hell they just experienced. And just the chances that Depp was taking in his early career, the people that he was working with, because he could have easily have become and embraced this, you know, heartthrob type character. But being Crybaby, being Edward Scissorhands, you know, working with Lassa Halstrom and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, again, not necessarily a sexy role kind of thing. And just so many he worked with so many great directors right there at the beginning of his career and just took a lot of chances i mean benny and june eh, arizona dream i did like that but and of course you know working with uh, over and over again with tim burton in some of these great roles like edward scissorhands like ed wood you know working with uh um, Jim Jarmusch with Dead Man. I mean, Dead Man, really challenging film. Not an easy film to get into, but it's it's a fantastic film. And then it's like now, it just feels like he's kind of this like caricature of himself. And a lot of the times that you know we mock him now, it feels like we mock him with that voice, that Hunter S. Thompson voice that he's doing, because he's now got this speech rhythm to him when he's talking about how important he is to the Hollywood community and all these things, and it's just well, kind of a weird thing. It, what is wrong with you people? Come on, seriously. I mean, why do you pick on movie stars? What have I done wrong? Pick it on. I'm trying to express myself, man. I'm, 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 I'm trying to help people. So, I'm trying to give joy to the masses right is that a crime is that a crime seriously you know i'm working with a great director right now uh, a guy named tim burton have you ever heard him of course yeah the film itself is really brilliant and um i'm playing a very interesting character do you have any idea who my leading lady is on this film in the tim burton film um yeah yeah. had a bottom car how'd you know stab in the dark she thinks you're an idiot if you look at his vocal performance in the movies that probably have made him now a billionaire, 
the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, it's like he's doing Hunter Thompson meets Keith Richards. I confess, it is my intention to commandeer one of these ships, pick up a crew in Tortuga, raid, pillage, plunder, and otherwise pilfer my Weasley Black Guts out. It's kind of stuck with him, and that's funny that you said earlier about Bill Murray, you know, watch yourself because it's going to seep into your other stuff. I mean, he became a good friend of Thompson. He went there, he lived with him, wanted to get his blessing and stuff like that. And the one thing that, that also connected them is they're both from Kentucky. There was all of these things that kind of led to, I think, Depp feeling like, and continued to feel up until, and, and even today, I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about the next film, The Rum Diary, in a bit, sort of wanting to carry on the value of what he saw in, in Thompson. And, of course, 10 years ago in 2005, when he died, making sure that his funeral was done the way that he wanted it and paid a large amount and made sure that you know, all of those things were done to the specifications that the uh, that the writer wanted out there in Woody Creek, Colorado. I thought that it was really nice that Johnny Depp has made a lot of kids' movies over the last few years, some good, some not good. I do have to say I really liked Rango. I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to see that, but really good film. I highly recommend it. And it was odd because as soon as I saw the poster for Rango, I was just like, what the hell is this? This is a lizard version of Hunter S. Thompson because he had the you know, the Hawaiian shirt, the way that his neck is crooked on the poster. It's very similar to the kind of weird, elongated Ralph Steadman-type neck that is on the poster for Fear and Loathing. And then it was really nice. In the movie, there is a nice homage to Hunter Thompson. The uh, Rango lizard actually lands on a window, and you've got basically Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo's in the back seat kind of splayed out and it's this nice little nod to this earlier film even though it's you know over a decade later that this was happening so yeah definitely still very influenced by Thompson and his writings and you know we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that with the next film but yeah it was nice that even in this kids movie there's this kind of little subversive nod there I think Depp does a great job in here. I mean, obviously, he's playing an amped-up version of Thompson. It's not Thompson directly. I mean, I'd say that it's probably more um, standard Thompson when you get into, like, the wave speech and things like that. But this ramped-up Raul Duke, you know, in the beginning and him twisted on acid and all of that other stuff is sort of a caricature. And this is where I think, talking about the differences between where the Buffalo roam and the way Bill Murray handles it, it seems like Murray's more up at times or out of it. Like he's mumbling more and kind of a little more incoherent, it seems to me, than what Depp does in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And I mean, in even a similar scene, when we talk about the differences between also Boyle and Del Toro with something like The Hitchhiker, because really that's kind of like when I look at both films, it's kind of really the only scene that they kind of share in common is where they pick up the kid that's hitchhiking and they kind of freak the kid out, and then the kid runs off. I have walked with the king. I've stood on the mountain. I saw all the earth, man. It's all over myself here. You know, and he talked back, man. He talked back. He said, it's all right, man. It's all right. We're all right. Well, this is all good news. Very comforting. This is empty. I think I'd like to get out pretty soon. Oh. 
you don't want to get out around here. Well, hey, we're your friends. Relax. Laszlo. You may have been wrong about that. You may not fit in. How much do you think he knows? Enough to put us in personal danger. It was sick. He was weird. Why did you pick him up? He, he needed help. He was out of his mind. What is with you picking up these weirdos? I knew right away. I, I didn't spot him a mile away. Though. He was a nut. He could have done serious damage to us. He could I like to help you. He had a wooden hand. I thought he was just tense. <laughs> what the? What the fuck are we doing out here in the middle of the desert? Somebody call the police. We need help. We need help. We need help. We need help. <laughs> the truth. Truth? Now we're going to Vegas to croak a skag baron named Savage Henry. It's true. Why? Because I've known him for years, but he ripped us off. And you know what that means. And you know what that means, right? Savage mm -hmm. oh. Henry has cast his check. Cast his check. And we're going to rip his lungs out. We're going to eat them. That bastard won't get away with this. I mean, what is going on in this country when a scumsucker like that can get away with sandbagging a doctor of journalism? Can you tell me that? Hey! Hey, to the right! I like I'm gonna miss him. Move over. Did you see his eyes? We have to get out of California before that kid finds a cop. <laughs> Come on, scoot over, you fat bastard. We got a real freak in our hands. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyhow, you mentioned Tommy McGuire is the hitchhiker, and the thing that I'm really impressed with, with uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, is it's not just a few, it, it's, it's stuffed to the gills with familiar faces it's stuffed to the gills with what could be cheesy cheesy fucking cameos but instead they work and it's just kind of adds again to this weird feeling of irreality when it comes to this film that the motorcycle cop or sorry that the cop that pulls over raul duke is gary Busey. you know it just kind of add something to it that we're seeing like these you know just uh our friend craig birko shows up at one point our friend tim thomerson shows up at one point it's just like these weird kind of things like was that mark Harmon? did i just see that right and it's just this kind of like blink and you miss it type cameo so it's not like you know where we see the really bad cameos where people come in and they just like mug at the camera you know like hey how's it going do you recognize this face i've got here instead it's just like subtle and it works and it's just like wait a second was that lorraine newman what the did i just see that right and it just kind of throws you and i think that it, it works in the right way like you know it, it just kind of like takes you out of the the it doesn't necessarily take you out of the film like a bad cameo does, but it just like adds that little a twist where it's just like, you know, wait a second, did I see that right? And by the time you even recognize who it was, in most cases, they're gone. Right. Like my my two favorites in there are the the desk clerk woman 
played by Catherine Hellman, which is a nod back to Brazil. Mm-hmm. It was Terry Gilliam used her in Brazil. And then the other is uh, Pendulette as one of the Carney Barkers in Circus Circus, where he's like, come on, step right up and all this. And he's only in there for just like 30 seconds, you know, <laughs> but you know the voice and you know the face and it's just, they just keep on walking. So it's, it, it's interesting how all of those little things play in. You've got uh, Lyle Lovett in, um, yeah. in one part. You've got Flea in the bathroom with the whole, um, you know, acid on the bathroom <laughs> on his arm. And they're in there, like, licking the stuff off his uh, sweatshirt, you know, and all that. And, the, you know, the square walks in and he can't quite figure out what they're doing. With a bit of luck, his life was ruined forever. Always thinking that just behind some narrow door in all his favorite bars... Men in red woolen shirts are getting incredible kicks from things he'll never know. And, and that's really what I think makes it work is, you know, Gilliam's just a master at, at pulling that stuff off in here. And it's probably the most cameos of famous people sort of going, oh, yeah, you know, like you were saying that he's ever done in a film. And it's like you get the fact that it was done on purpose. It wasn't just... Let's just chuck this thing to the gills with these people. It's like, no, let's actually put these people in here because we want to give this sort of twisted sense of of place. Right. It wasn't, you know, I mean, it made sense in something like a Time Bandits. You know, it, it didn't, it wouldn't have made sense in something like a Fisher King. So it wasn't in there. And, you know, there was a time, and I still think that he's got some glimmers of this where Terry Gilliam one of the best filmmakers around. I'm not so sure with some of the stuff that he's done lately, but then again, he's also one of the riskiest filmmakers around. And we've talked about risky filmmakers before case in point, Orson Welles. And just like Orson Welles wanted to make his man from La Mancha, we've got, or Don Quixote here. We have, you know, poor Terry Gilliam also trying to do the same thing. It's kind of interesting how their careers kind of parallel at times. You're the one thing that I was really glad that they kept in the film. For some reason, when I was reading the book all those years ago when I was in high school, the one thing that I always glommed onto was Hunter Thompson talking about how when you're being chased by the police that you really need to show how good of a driver that you are and that you will earn the respect of the police and that they keep that whole little narrative bit in there. Few people understand the psychology of dealing with a highway traffic cop. Your normal speeder will panic and immediately pull over to the side. This is wrong. It arouses contempt in the cop heart. Make the bastard chase you. He will follow. But he won't know what to make of your blinker signal that says you're about to turn right. This is to let him know you're pulling off for a proper place to talk. It'll take him a moment to realize that he's about to make a 180-degree turn at speed. But you will be ready for it. Brace for the G's and fast heel toe. And then I do have to say Gary Busey fantastic role in this and then i don't know if you got a chance to see the documentary about hunter s thompson that Busey is in it's uh out there currently on um youtube in like 10 parts it was a stars documentary and oh my god Busey trying to <laughs> trying to control the interview and setting himself up you know like oh when when i come on let's see 
fear and loathing Las Vegas with you as the policeman. How did it play out? Start over. Call my name like you just got here. Could you talk to us a little bit about fear and loathing? Slow down with your talking. Don't make it an interview. Talk to me like you're personal. Like you don't interrupt me, you know? Wait. You got to get my attention before you ask me the question. I'm giving you a scenario here. You know, give me something to work with. Don't just shoot questions at me. I can't do it. Here's the deal. I'm sitting here. I'm out here by myself. You come in and you say, Gary, and I turn and look and sit up. And you introduce yourself to me and tell me what you're doing and ask me if it's okay. That'll be good. Gary? Hey. I'm here uh, exploring the writer and the personality. What is your name? My name's Tom Thurman. Tom Thurman, nice to meet you. I'm Gary. Gary, nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us, man. You just walked in, huh? Yeah. You got this lavalier. What's this for? Just to have two different versions of it. Good idea. Okay. Gary? Yeah. Tom Thurman. Hey, Tom. How are you? Fine. How are you, man? I've been great. I've been great. What brings you? What? Did you just walk in? Just walked in. That's the way the... That's the way I like it, you know. Ambitiously meet people and be hospitable. What's going on? I'm, uh... That dog? That dog is barking? That is not... My dog. It's an honor for me to be here to discuss our top story tonight. Hunter S. Thompson. I really think that the director did himself a very good turn by keeping all of that insanity of Busey right there forefront in those first few minutes of the dock. It was by the ticket, take the ride, uh, Hunter S. Thompson on film from 2006. Highly recommended. And also in there, I believe, is Bob Broadus, who was uh, sheriff at the time of Pitt King County. And there's a lot of stuff related to Aspen. As folks know, if you listen to the show over the last year, year and a half, um, that I lived in Aspen for a while. And and I think that may have been part of the reason why I wanted to do this program because the place is really steeped in in Thompson in a lot of ways, even though um, he came to kind of hate what the place went on to represent in terms of all the money and everything that came in there. When he ran for sheriff in 1970 of Pitkin County and lost, he had all of these you know crazy plans. It, to me, it was sort of the um, Jello Biafra for mayor campaign back in what was it seventy seven and um you know it was things like banning cars from the from the city limits and stuff like that and and one of the things that Thompson wanted to do was he was he would talk about how the developers were coming in and the money was coming in and it was going to wreck the joint and all this and he had been there f- for a few years before that and he had this thing about um he wanted to change the name of Aspen to fat city and there's a building in Aspen that's called the Fat City Building, which obviously is a little nod back to Thompson. Hunter Thompson is a moralist posing as an immoralist. Nixon is an immoralist disguised as a moralist. This is James Salter. There'll be thieves and autorecs in Aspen whoever gets elected. But Hunter represents something wholly alien to the other candidates for sheriff. Ideas. And a sympathy towards the young, generous, grass-oriented society which is making the only serious effort to face the technological nightmare we have created. The only thing against him is he's a visionary. He wants too pure a world. You can find little pieces of Thompson around the city of Aspen, but really it's the little town of Woody Creek, which is about mm, seven, eight miles out 
which is closer to where Owl Farm was and where his compound was. And, and you'll hear more about that coming up in just a few moments. And also, uh, if you do make it out there, and I think I put some of the photos up on our Facebook event for this episode, you can uh, take a look at the uh, Wig Creek Tavern, which used to be uh, one of his haunts, and it's kind of become a shrine to uh, all things Hunter Thompson. And I think there was actually an uh, L.A. Times story recently that uh, I think we'll share at projection-booth.com, which is kind of funny, about how the locals mess with people who uh, come there. So just to find out about Thompson. Yeah, it's funny. You can find a lot of little bits of Hunter S. Thompson around Woody Creek. Kind of like how you can find little pieces of Jimmy Hoffa around Michigan. Well, I mean, Thompson didn't disappear in that way. So <laughs> I'm, His attorney did. I'm hoping for a rim shot there. well we actually haven't found any of them so yeah you know we're still looking right so i'm sure there'll be another one of those uh hey we think he's over here now so keep on digging because yeah it's it's kind of like seasons around here it's like winter spring summer hoffa season you know kind of like that so let's take a break and play an interview with anita thompson that's hunter s thompson's widow and the head of the organization that keeps his work alive the gonzo foundation after these messages Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. But let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo! That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. 
Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. first meet hunter i met hunter when i was 25 years old so that was 16 or 17 17 years ago and i met him through a mutual friend who uh told me that i because i asked about football i said what is it about football that can bond men who have nothing else in common but can be lifelong friends over sunday or monday night football what is it and he said i have the perfect person to answer this question he's a sports writer so a few weeks later, I ended up in Hunter's Kitchen with my friend, and we became instant friends. I was uh, um, Hunter was a total gentleman, and he just, I'd never met anyone like him, so I was intrigued right away. And about two years after that, I started working for him and immediately fell in love, and I moved in in 2000. What was the day-to-day like around him? As you said, you did work for him. Well, the day started about 2 p.m. Hunter liked to work at night. He was a night owl. And the day started about 2, and he started with a breakfast. It was sort of his morning meditation. He had a very big southern breakfast, always with vegetables, uh, along with his corned beef hash and eggs or poached eggs or omelet, uh, his uh, shivas and water, and fresh-squeezed orange juice, black coffee with sugar and all the newspapers. He started with the New York Times and moved to the USA Today. We read the sports section and the politics page and would go down the list to, to the Denver Post. And if we were going into Aspen that day, he would read the local papers as well. And those two hours from 2 to 4 in the afternoon, those were uh, sacred for him. They he, he was very peaceful and quiet, and he it was sort of a meditation. And then the phone calls would begin. He would make the phone calls that were needed that day and plan his um, errands or 
you know, with conference calls, and sometimes we would go into Aspen, particularly when he was doing physical therapy. And uh, often, if there was a game on, whether it was football or basketball, rarely baseball. He was not a big fan of baseball, but sometimes we would watch it, and it was a really great game. And soccer, anything, and we would have people over, and by about 10 o'clock is when it would be my job to start uh, inviting people to leave so that Hunter could get to work. Every night was really a work night for Hunter. As uh, any writer knows this, you're sort of always working when you're a writer. You're always thinking if you're not writing notes or actually writing. So that so that started his, his work day was at 10 p.m. or so, 10, 11. And sometimes one or two friends would stay or a writing assistant, and we would get busy. And sometimes Hunter was, it was easy for him to start writing, or sometimes it was not so easy. When you look at what he was doing, uh, what did you see as the topics and themes that sort of fired him and fired his work? What was it that he was really about in that way? Well, I started working for him in 2000. So you can imagine the the big one with George W. Bush. Um, that was really inspired him. He had been in sort of a writer's block for about 10 or 15 years before I met him. A lot of reasons for that. He was um, His health was not very good. He had a hip replacement. And maybe he was just taking a break. Uh, and, but when George W. Bush came into office, it was, that really fired Hunter up to write. And because I had, I had not uh, been with him or seen him when he was in a writer's block, um, it seemed perfectly natural for me, for him to be writing every night because that's what he was. He was a writer. And uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing to see Hunter writing, even when he was angry, because he wasn't uh, venting venom. He was actually empowering his readers. Uh, his point of writing, for example, for ESPN was uh, the same, he used the same lens that he used when he was writing for Rolling Stone. He didn't write for Rolling Stone because he thought it was a cool magazine in the 70s. He wrote for Rolling Stone because he realized he could reach a block of voters and activists through music, through this music magazine. And he did that. He did activate many people. And the same thing happened with ESPN, his, his sports column. He tapped into a whole group of sports fans who he would he knew he was politicizing and empowering these readers through his columns and also making them laugh because he was a great uh, comedic writer and the, um, one of the most important voices of his generation. And he made people laugh and become empowered and uh, more interested in, in politics and their environment. The show we do, we're going to look at the three adaptations of his films as well as talking about his writing and was wondering if I could uh, kind of go through the three of them with you and see if you had any uh, notes on them. Uh, The first one, uh, Where the Buffalo Roam, to my understanding, when it came out, he really wasn't too happy with it. Uh, What what do you remember is maybe the conversation around that? He was very, he wasn't really, uh, like most writers, cringed a little bit at uh, the thought of his beloved writing being portrayed on the screen because it, 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 writers often don't like their work edited and particularly changed into film. They like the idea of it, but when it comes down to seeing their work or themselves portrayed on screen, it was uh, difficult. So he loved Bill Murray. He loved Bill Murray's performance, but he was certainly uh, insulted by the 
by his portrayal, uh, along with Johnny Depp, he said, if somebody ever acted like that around me, I would hit them over the head with a chair. <laughs> but um, he didn't. He was not thrilled with the but where the Buffalo Room, but he was he was thrilled with uh, Bill Murray's performance. And it was a difficult script. Uh, it was sort of a mishmash of The Great Shark Hunt and a little bit of Hunter's biography. The, so the screen writing and the plot was not was kind of this nebulous, um, not easy to understand film. But despite that, Bill Murray did an amazing job and Hunter loved him. And so he, in fact, his last column was about Bill Murray. He mentioned it a little bit there, but the fear and loathing in Las Vegas and, and Johnny Depp and, and that. And I, I know that yes. I guess for a time Johnny had kind of lived with him and gotten, yes. you know, and all that and was just wondering what his take was when that film, you know, finally came out. Yes. Hunter's take on fear and loathing in Las Vegas, the movie was similar to where the Buffalo Realm. He loved Johnny Depp. Um, however, he didn't like the way he was portrayed as a character he didn't think that he acted like that in public or in private and thought it was appalling. However, he loved Johnny so much in the, in the cast uh, and Benicio Del Toro, and they all did such a great job. And he, he developed a lifelong friendship with them, despite the, not being so happy with the film. That's normal for a writer. Well, I was going to ask about that because I remember reading or seeing in an interview before that he said that, you know, the the Vegas book, you know, no one could really do that and still live. And was wondering, did you see a difference between his characterization of Duke and himself? And, and really, what were the big differences in that way? Yes, the character that Johnny played was a compilation of what John, when Johnny moved in and lived with Hunter, was a compilation of Hunter at an older age and a compilation of him at an, what Johnny assumed Hunter must have acted like in, in the book. Uh, so it was a compilation of what Johnny saw and what Johnny imagined, and also Johnny's professionalism in acting that he would, was true to what he thought Hunter would have acted like. So Hunter, right, he, again, he wasn't, uh, he didn't like to see that on screen, but he was thrilled with uh, Johnny's friendship and his uh, efforts. I'm not sure if I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just wondering about the difference between the sort of the Raoul Duke character oh. that he wrote in the book and that's in the film versus who Hunter was to you, right. you know, because... Well, yes, that's a very good question. The Hunter Thompson or the Duke character in the film and the book versus Hunter Thompson, the real person. There were certainly elements of craziness and wild, fun, teenage girl trapped in the body of an elderly dope fiend aspects to Hunter. He, I cannot deny that he had a crazy lifestyle, but certainly he, he could not sustain that all the time, nor would he want to, and, and that's unnatural. Um, so there are parts of that I have to admit are realistic. There are realistic portrayals of Hunter's behavior at times when he was having fun, or if he was in a high, in a, you know, in a heightened state. Um, but Hunter was uh, one of the, the nicest people I've ever met. He was one of the most, maybe the most curious person, and that I've ever known, and a, a true Southern gentleman. He, his loyalty and his love for his friends 
uh, lasted a lifetime. He, he was one of the most loyal people um, any of his friends will uh, will remember. It, it was um, it was a beautiful thing to to see him when he when he was happy, which was most of the time. He was he, he was generous and kind, and not the Raoul Duke character. But that was part of his profession, was creating this character that lived with him for the rest of his life and is still living on in this legacy. So there is definitely a distinction between the two. However, there was some of that in Hunter's lifestyle. Johnny Depp uh, played him as as Duke in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and then did the adaptation of The Rum Diary and was just wondering, uh, I know that he had been gone uh, by the time the film had come out. But was he around uh, during that adaptation process and they were considering yeah. making it? Uh, we started the process of uh, finding a screenwriter and getting the cast together while Hunter was still alive. And he was very much involved with that process. He was excited to have Ron Diary um, made into a film. He flew to Los Angeles a few times for it. And a few uh, actors came to Owl Farm to, to read from Ron Diary. Um, you know, it's interesting because Rum Diary was written in the 50s, uh, you know, before we moved into the postmodern period. Most scholars agree it was around 1968 that globally we moved into the postmodern period. So Rum Diary was, was his first novel. However, it was published much later uh, in the 90s. So you have this, so Johnny is sort of, uh, uh, using the Raoul Duke character, but it's from a different time period. And I think he did a brilliant job of bridging those two characters in two different postmodern and modern periods. He did a great job. I think Hunter would have been pleased. Seeing that Johnny played him in sort of two different iterations, what has been um, your conversations with him as to why why Hunter mattered to him and, and why he was glad to play him in both of these films and be you know eventually become a good friend of his? Yes, they were. Uh, Johnny and Hunter are very good friends. Uh, I think Johnny looked at Hunter a bit as a father figure and also a mentor and kind of a playmate. They had a lot of fun together. They're both very smart, and Hunter recognized that intelligence in Johnny and a sense of fun and adventure. And that kind of loyalty uh, and also recognition of really great work, I think uh, those two things are what makes Johnny really fit in Hunter's world uh, on the screen because it is, uh, they have matched intelligence and sense of fun and professionalism. And they just, uh, they just clicked. Sometimes friendships, uh, you have no, I, I told you, you can't explain completely why they clicked, but Hunter and Johnny were just made for each other. It seems like he was not very comfortable with versions of himself in the media that other people would play. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. People who know Hunter, he was actually very shy. A lot of that um, relative character was a symptom of shyness. It was a way to overcome shyness, putting on a show like that. When we were, we did the Hunter's book signing in New York at Times Square, Barnes and Noble for his memoir, Kingdom of Fear. And it was like a rock concert. And people had been lining up. They had been camping for seats or, or, you know, be able to be in the bookstore for the book signing and the fire marshal had been there all day turning thousands of people away and when the car came around the back 
there were, you know, there were thousands of people trying to get into the, get to the limousine where Hunter was. It was pretty scary, actually. So you could imagine someone as shy as Hunter. He's not, he doesn't want to disappoint that people have been waiting since 8 in the morning inside the bookstore. There, there is a bit of a show, and he, I did see that Raoul Duke character come up a little bit as a sort of a defense mechanism against thousands of people. I don't know what I would have done. I was there, but it wasn't my deal. I could see, you know, my Hunter dealing with this. And, you know, it was something new to me on this kind of scale. So, yeah, there was a, a Hunter was shy. So, you know, that, that was a sort of a defense mechanism for him. Yeah. And that's the thing. I was, um, we were talking about those adaptations and that characterization. And I know this is a bit earlier, uh, than when you met him, but I was wondering if he had ever mentioned to you about his take on the uncle Duke character in the Doonesbury comics. Oh, yes. We talked about that many times. You know, I was, I helped him write his memoir, so a lot of these topics did come up. Uh, he was, he despised the, the um, Uncle Duke character in Doonesbury and Gary Trudeau. He had uh, started lawsuits. He wanted it to stop. At first, he wanted to stop because um, Gary Trudeau was including his wife at the time, Sandy, and his son, Juan, and it was really upsetting for Hunter. And also, it, he didn't like the characterization like that um, because... That wasn't true. The, the Trudeau character and Raoul Duke that Johnny Depp portrays are two different things. Uh, and Hunter didn't like the Gary Trudeau adaptation at all. I know for you, um, it, it has been uh, 10 years since his passing and was wondering if that was something that, that you could talk about in terms of, you know, um, eventually what what happened uh, to him towards the end and, and then, of course, the great celebration for him. You know, Hunter had been suicidal since he was very young, off and on. Um, I was aware of that. I knew that. I, I did not expect it, and it was a shock to all of to, to most of us. And it was a very difficult time for all of us, and I find that over the years, it's not something that uh, I, I miss him any less, and those who loved him, I know that I've spoken to feel the same way. We don't miss him any less, and... What it is is we just get used to it, and we we celebrate his life through his work, and but like this talking about him with you, and the more people that are turned on to Hunter's work, I know the world is becoming a better place. He improved my life so much, and taught me so many things, and gave me gifts that I will never be able to repay him for. So I hope that more people could read Hunter's work, so we'll get a, a, a piece of that confidence that Hunter spread to everybody and to his readers. And the celebration for his life, uh, six months after he passed away at Owl Farm, it was beautiful. Um, it was a little, it was a little Hollywoodish, or, and I didn't like all the security, but um, I think it was necessary. And now the monument was taken down right away. It was just a temporary monument and just for the funeral. And now it's a labyrinth. I built a labyrinth on it two years ago, and it's more of a quiet place for reflection. And it's just it's beautiful in the Owl Farm Valley, or the Red Cliff, right behind the house. It's uh, 42 acres. Today there were uh, about 200 elk that I haven't and I haven't seen this particular herd in about two years. It was beautiful, and uh, that to me is a tribute to Hunter. That the preservation of his land and um, I love Owl Farm still today. I left it as 
as he left it, the main parts of the house, and um, it brings me comfort. One of the ways that his legacy is preserved is through the work that you do with the Gonzo Foundation, and I was wondering if you could talk about that and what the mission is. The Gonzo Foundation actually started when Hunter was alive. We started it in the kitchen in an abstract form one night when Ralph Steadman was in town, and Ralph uh, encouraged us to buy the domain name and, and get things started that way, but it was more abstract. And then after Hunter passed away, I wanted to do whatever I could in my power, you know, with limited finances, to promote his work. So I started the Gonzo Foundation from that same concept, and it's a um, it's a small nonprofit, and we work more on a local level, and we promote political activism, literature, sometimes literacy. I've done some after school programs and writing uh, contests and and, and whatever uh, those those things that Hunter loved and many of us uh, love because of him. We, we promote that. You must meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people like me who, you know, are fans of his work or, um, you know, have read it, seen the films, things like that. And what's the one thing that you often run up against that you feel that people either don't understand or they get wrong about Hunter Thompson and their their conception of who he was? I think uh, that's a really good question. Uh, the most common misconception is that he liked a party. There's a big difference between just crazy partying and having fun. Uh, coming into his house drunk or off your mind or acting stupid was not fun for him at all. In fact, really drunk people, they were asked to leave. I never, oh, well, that's not true. I saw Hunter drunk twice in my five years of living with him. And uh, he, he loved fun, but he didn't love a stupid uh, fraternity-style party. He was never about that. He was about intelligent conversation and practical jokes and elevating uh, the environment, not dragging it down into a stupid party um, atmosphere. He loved fun, but not uh, drunken weirdness. When you look at it now, what's the one thing that you feel people should learn and take away from his work and his life? That, uh, as an ind- what people, I believe, is what I'm noticing at lectures and, and that I give or people that I talk to more now over the last 10 years is that younger people are not um, so crushed by the fact that he passed away because they didn't know his work then. So what they're, they're taking his work now and they're using it in their own lives and to empower themselves as a group, both individually as they're reading and then collectively they're using that as fuel. I see it on campuses and I see it on in emails and, and my Facebook and, and social media and the letters that I get. It's uh, having uh, the impact he's having on the younger generation is beautiful and almost surprising um, because I was so worried after he passed away. It's not guaranteed that a writer's legacy will continue. It's never guaranteed. It may seem like it is, but it's not. But the fact that Hunter is growing and he is empowering young people to understand that their individual place in a collective society is very important. So there, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, and I'm so proud of Hunter for his activism and imparting that on young, younger readers, along with his seasoned you know, generation that came before the 70s and 80s, like you. Um, you, you know, that's the same. You came from the same era, right, from uh, 
you know, the the 70s and 80s, right? Is that where you were introduced to Hunter? I was actually introduced to him in the 90s because I'm 37. So, okay, so you're, I, yeah, yeah. Well, you're the younger kid. You're sort of the in between generation. Yeah, so you were uh, introduced to him around Clinton and and uh, his years that he worked with James Carville. Yes, uh, you're, yeah, you're, in, it's just, you're sort of in my. I didn't know who Hunter was. Uh, actually, I thought his name was Hunter Thomas um, when I first met him. But he 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 turned my world so upside down, and um, it's it's just really great to see all these young readers being turned on to his work and having their, he's having the same impact on them. When I moved to Aspen two years ago, one of the first places I went was the Woody Creek Tavern, and uh-huh. just wanted to ask you about sort of how you know Woody Creek's a little place, but he looms large there still, and sort of what that connection is. Yes. Uh, Yes, Woody Creek is it's a really special place, and I hope it always will be. I hope it will always be protected as sort of an um, agricultural ranch community where there are a lot of intellectuals and artists and people who love the Aspen Valley but prefer to live on ranch land and farmland like myself. And it, uh, Hunter still, his spirit is so strong at the tavern, at the at the Woody Creek Community Center, and also at Owl Farm, I do have a problem with trespassers. Um, my hope and my intention is to have to be able to make a create a museum as a semi-public, maybe by appointment only, so that people people who love Hunter's work can come to Owl Farm and see where he lived and worked and spend some time on the land that he loved so much. And I hope to do that within the next year. It's, it has not been easy, um, I, but I hope to do that within a year or so. Is there anything that uh, people who are fans of his can uh, do to help you in that effort beyond not uh, trespassing? I wish, I wish was, yeah, I wish there was something that uh, Hunter's fans could do to help me create a museum from from the house. But right now, it's in a it's in a trust. Hunter said really was. An incredibly generous man. He set this up long before we were born. Uh, I mean, sorry. <laughs> I think that's getting a little tired. So I wish there is something that uh, Hunter's readers and people who loved his work could do to help me um, make it a museum. But right now, it is um, the, the Owl Farm is in a trust, and it's held in trust for my lifetime. But I... It, I'm not able to make it a museum until I, I work a deal with the trust and the family, which has been um, not easy because it's very sensitive and we all love Hunter and we want to um, protect his work. But my hope is to make it a museum very soon. But unfortunately, it's something that I need to deal with the trustees and myself. And unfortunately, the money is an issue. It always has been. Hunter was wealthy in so many ways, but not financially wealthy. So... Uh, that has been the issue. Where's the best place for people to go if they want to learn more about him and the foundation? Uh, the best place to go is uh, the, the org or the Wake Creek Community Center. I have a monthly writing group, and we have events there once in a while. And um, I'm always happy. When I see people, I'm always happy to talk about Hunter. It's one of my favorite topics in the world. And it, I, I, at this point, I can tell it, it always will be. So I'm happy to, anytime uh, you see me at the community center, I'm happy to talk about Hunter and answer any questions. But his work is the best place to get to know Hunter. 
he, first and foremost, he was a writer. He loved his profession so much that he put everything into his writing. So if you want to get to know Hunter, read his work, any of it. The letters, the novels, the columns, they're all great, and they all have a piece of Hunter that will really enrich your life and, um, and give you a sense of fun when you're feeling down. Thanks to Anita Thompson for coming on the show. You can find out more about the Gonzo Foundation over at our website, projection-booth.com. The Gonzo Foundation, not just for people who love chickens. This week we're talking about the films based on the works of Hunter S. Thompson, which brings us to the adaption of his novel, The Rum Diary, from 2011, starring our good friend, Mr. Johnny Depp again. Puerto Rico. I came down here looking for a story. It's called journalism. Your resume, yeah? Don't look so anxious. I wouldn't have paid for your hotel if I hadn't already hired you. <laughs> but I found the strangest paradise on earth. Hey, you made it. But you said you had a TV. The guy across the alley has a TV. I have binoculars. It's where your secrets come to dance. Don't notice the wig. And the voodoo works its magic. And if the drinking doesn't get you into trouble, how does anybody drink 161 miniatures? Are they not complimentary? The women definitely will. I thought maybe you were a mermaid. I'm from Connecticut. Stay away from her. She's Sanderson's fiance. She sunbathes in the nude. Take it like to Morocco. She's a sweet little beauty. I was looking at his boat. We've all been down on her. It's a wonderful experience. <laughs> now all this might sound like some crazed hallucination, but it's all true. I think. It's a sea of money, Paul. And there's people like me who know how to get it out. Isn't that kind of thing illegal? It's an inappropriate comment. We've nailed this bastard to his own front door. I got a story for you. I'm going after him. Are you out of your mind? I bet. Do you scream before I do? such thing as 470 proof alcohol what we do is private front seat's gone i've got a brilliant idea try and look normal so rob what did you think of the rum diary did you see this when it came out or did you just see it recently well, I just saw it recently. It was one that I was kind of looking forward to seeing, and I think it showed up and disappeared pretty quick. I remember that when I was working at the mom-and-pop bookstore, I think this came out as a book around the time of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, because I think it was one of the new hardcover books, and um, I didn't get a chance to read it then. I was not really all that excited to read a novel by him. Not that it wouldn't be good, I didn't think, but... 
I had heard some of the backstory on it that basically it was kind of like something that he wrote when he was in his early 20s and they just decided to put it out. I don't know how much of a rewrite he went back on it or if it just sort of went out as is. I've never read the book. It's kind of an interesting little film, especially when you compare it against the other two that we talked about earlier. It's definitely a smaller film. Yeah, what about yourself? Did uh, you get a chance to see it when it was out or only on home view? Only on a home view. I I, don't, I think it was that Johnny Depp thing. I don't, I don't know what it is about Johnny Depp. Maybe it's Alice in Wonderland or some of the other stuff that he's done recently, but like I've just really had a problem with him over the last few years. And when it came to, hey, here's this new movie, and he's playing Hunter S. Thompson again, kind of a Hunter S. Thompson character, kind of like how Raul Duke isn't necessarily Thompson, but he kind of is. Well, here's this character who's kind of Thompson, but he is. And I was just like, man, is he really, is this going to be his fate to just kind of play Hunter S. Thompson characters for the rest of his life? I understand that you like the guy and everything, but it was just kind of weird. Maybe I just seen, was it the tourist or I don't know, like he was still a few years away from Mordecai. So I wasn't mortified yet, but I was just still not feeling it. So I skipped this one when I was at theaters for that brief period of time and watched it on home viewing. And yeah, it's a, it's a much, much smaller film. This feels like an independent film, uh, rather than any kind of like big budget type of thing. Not necessarily what, you know, it's kind of getting depth back more to his roots a little bit more. And I was impressed, you know, the director who did this had done with nail and I, and had done, uh, how to get ahead in advertising, which is one of my favorite films. So I was kind of like, okay, you know, I can maybe kind of get in this, um, and it's just, I don't know, there's something about it that just really didn't work for me. I guess it was too languid of a pace, and I never really felt for the characters that much. And it just felt a little too, I don't know, it felt a lot like things that I had seen before, but done better. It just seems very, like, I guess to put it lightly, it, it feels like light beer or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... It, it's Thompson, but it's Thompson Light. It's, um, it's the Diet the thing Coke that, of Thompson. Just one calorie, yeah. not enough Thompson. <laughs> you know, the thing that's interesting about it is, and, and this is from more of a biographical standpoint, if you're a fan of his stuff and you want to kind of like maybe learn something about his history, this gives you a little bit of an insight into his time before he, you know, kind of went off the rails, quote unquote, and became what we know him as. Because he did work in Puerto Rico for a while in the late 50s, which is what this represents. So I think it may have even been more interesting if he would have wrote it in a manner of him reflecting on that time as opposed to writing it through this fictionalized version of himself and all of that. Because, like I said, the, the, the love triangle story... Mm. The whole thing about the developers and the Aaron Eckhart character, which watching that and reflecting back on Aspen and his feelings on, you know, the money's going to ruin this place. If that was true in some sort of biographical sense, I can see where his attitude about developers and about people coming in and like ripping off the joint and not really having much love for the, the average working class folks. You can see some of the early uh, things in here when it comes to 
the treatment of the underclass, which he was always a big champion of the poor and the marginalized and things like that against the power. You see that in his writing all the time. So it's it it does look good. It just for for some reason I, I agree with you. It just doesn't seem to connect well, and and I don't know what it is. Uh, the one thing that was interesting, at least in terms of the um, the reading I did about this, was the director had been sober for like years, and to write the script, he started drinking again, and then started drinking through the production of the film, and then as soon as the film was over, I guess went back to being sober again. I guess he felt that he needed to channel some sort of booze or something in order to get the spirit of, of Hunter Thompson, which by the time this came out, he had been dead about five, six years. He wasn't around to kind of guide it the way that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was because the person who was one of the main producers on the Terry Gilliam film was Layla Nabulsi, who you can hear on our Nothing Lasts Forever episode. And she had been for a while and does talk about it a little bit in that interview about uh, Hunter. She had been Hunter's girlfriend. She had lived with him in Colorado and she was one of the producers on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So there was this connection in that way. And then with this, I don't know if it I, – I, I'm not sure if he would have been happy with it or not, not having read the book and how he would have felt about the adaptation. I mean, I know that they, as I said before, him and Johnny Depp had a, a good kinship and a soft spot for each other. And you heard Anita kind of talk about that as well in the interview. But – as for his feelings on the final product, I don't know. I think that whenever somebody is adapting your work or talking about you in some way, and I mean, and I've never had anyone do anything to that period, but I've had people write stories or, or things about me, even in small ways, it's always a little odd when people filter your life and, and put it up there in some manner, whether it be a, a news story or video or an interview or something like that. It's, it's uh, So it's you get more used to it with time, but I don't know how he would have felt about this one or not. There were a couple characters in here that just felt really cartoonish, and they didn't necessarily gel with the real world. It felt like it, we couldn't tell, for me anyway, if this is supposed to be comedy or drama or dramedy or somewhere around there. Because there are certain characters, like Giovanni Ribisi's character, Moberg, who is this what is he, Swedish guy, and he's obsessed with Nazis and loves you know, new drugs and drinking crazy amounts of alcohol, 400 proof kind of stuff. He's a cartoon character. And then you have, you know, like Amber Heard or Aaron Eckhart who are very grounded in reality. They're kind of this, you know, it, it feels like you're bouncing back and forth between, you know, the antics of the newsroom guys, you know, especially with like Richard Jenkins as Lotterman, who's, kind of grounded in reality but then his hair is not like these kind of weird things and then you're you're kind of like kemp kind of feels at times kemp the johnny depp character he kind of feels like um what's the guy's name nick Carraway or whatever coming in and seeing daisy and and jake gatsby and stuff and it just feels like there's too many ideas that are going on in this movie that again don't necessarily match up. And I have to say that Michael Rispoli, who plays Sala, who's the, the Kemp's best friend, 
I have to say that he's more interesting to me than Kemp himself. And I would kind of like to have seen more of just a movie of him. And I thought that he, as an actor, did a fantastic job and really kept me engaged. But there wasn't enough of him because it's not his movie, you know, and that's fair enough. It's not his movie, but I liked his character more than I liked anybody else in the film. Yeah, I really liked him. I, 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 I think he was on some big TV show for a while, right? He was on Sopranos or something? He might have been. I didn't watch Sopranos. I know he was in Kick-Ass and... I mean, yeah, he's uh, he, he really was great in that. And then I want to say he was in Pain and Gain as well, the Michael Bay film, the one of the few Michael Bay films I like. I thought he did a really great job. I I think it looks beautiful, as you're saying. It's it shot really well. It's funny that you bring up Gatsby because there's a story in in Thompson's biography that supposedly he taught himself how to type by retyping over and over again the Great Gatsby. So he would just crack the book open and then just start typing, you know, as a typing practice. So, so it's funny that some of you feel Gatsby kind of like worked its way into the book, which he wrote in his early 20s, which would have been around the time that, like I said, he was just starting to become a newspaper man and, and write about sports. I think this was right after he got out of uh, the military because he was in service for a couple of years. The other thing I really felt a lot and I think that these are separated by an ocean and separated by many years as far as when they were penned and everything. I, but I, I felt a real kinship between the Rum Diary and St. Jack. St. Jack, the Peter Bogdanovich film that we covered a couple of years ago now, I think. But that whole idea of this you know, white guy living in a, well, living on an island, I guess, living in this, you know, uh, small nation with a lot of brown people that he doesn't necessarily understand with this kind of culture and then a lot of corruption going on. And that one is the corruption that's kind of a side result of the Vietnam War and everything. And just his ability to kind of navigate what's going on. But I felt that St. Jack, the... Ben Gazzara character was much more of an interesting character to follow than the Kemp character. And he, you know, Ben Gazzara is trying to make a difference and try, you know, he's, he's, he, he's a dynamic character. Kemp is kind of a dynamic character, but Kemp, it feels like, I don't know. It's just, it feels like it's a little forced for him as far as like, Oh, look at, I see these children and they're starving. And, but yet we pay money for this and look at how lavish these guys are living. And it just felt like it was very like telegraphed to the audience so much. Whereas I felt St. Jack was a much more subtle film and a much more interesting film. So, and which is a shame to me that like, Still, St. Jack, not a lot of people talking about that movie. And I think because of the star power of a Johnny Depp and this adaptation of Hunter S. Thompson that we're getting more people that recognize that The Rum Diary exists, though I would say skip The Rum Diary and just go right to St. Jack. Well, to me, St. Jack is one of Bogdanovich's best films. I mean, it's just uh, it's a great piece. We did a good show on that and i could totally see ben gazzara <laughs> in this uh, in this kind of film as well i mean it's it's that kind of thing it just you know it just it just feels like it's missing something sadly i don't necessarily know what kind of improved it i mean i thought with what aaron eckhart had to work with he he did a good job aaron eckhart uh, can I think play some, an a-hole better than a lot oh, of actors 
Yeah, I mean, my first interaction with him was in the company of men. Oh, God. And I tell people to watch that, and it's just genius. I mean, everything flows from there. I mean, and then, as we talked about on the show, I think it was last week, uh, thank you for smoking. I mean, just amazing in there, too. So, I mean, he's just a fabulous actor, and, and uh, you know, for what he has to work with, he does a good job. So let's not leave it on a low note. There's got to be some high points here that we haven't talked about as far as other Hunter S. Thompson-related work. I mentioned before that the guy has been involved with either as a subject to or as part of documentary works like crazy. I recommended the one film that I saw. Are there other documentaries or other things Hunter S. Thompson-related that you can recommend to our audience? Well, buy the ticket, take the ride isn't bad. But the one that I think is sort of a level up from that is Alex Gibney's Gonzo. And that one is definitely worth checking out. I think Johnny Depp actually does all the voiceovers in there. There's other extras on the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas DVD set that includes a documentary from the early 80s. It was a British TV show. I think it may have been an episode of Omnibus or something like that, which is kind of interesting. It's him and Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray hanging out. So this is obviously like 7980 around the time of where the Buffalo Rome were going to take place. But there's one scene in the documentary that kind of blew my mind years later was him sitting down with Ralph Steadman and drawing up the funeral that he eventually did have with the the cannon. For those who aren't familiar with, with what Thompson wanted, he wanted the gonzo symbol, which is this fist with two thumbs which shows his he said the 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 second thumb shows evolution the idea that you know it's the the thumb that's human evolution so it's the second evolution holding onto a peyote button this would be in the shape of a cannon it would be this big cannon like that would be stood upright over in the mountains in woody creek and his ashes would be blown out of this cannon that was his plan upon his after he died now, he had this plan in, like, 1979, 1980. Oh, yeah, it's in the will. You know, it's all described. It's going to be a little hard to uh, to do, particularly with me going. But uh, I think it be a nice monument. After the cremation, we put the ashes in a, uh, a canister and then shoot it out the top of the uh, fist over the valley and up, gets up about, say, 500 feet up, explodes, and the ashes drift down all over here. And that's it. That's my funeral. So it would be another 25 years before he was actually, you know, would die and killed himself and, um, and had that happen. As for the things that surrounded his death, I remember when it first happened, it was right after the Super Bowl. And supposedly the, um, the famous line in his suicide note was football season is over. And he killed himself from what I understand from talking to people who knew him around the Aspen area due to the fact that he was in severe pain. He had, uh, I think, uh, hip problems and back problems and things like that, and it would become very chronic and constant, and he just couldn't handle it anymore. So I did, it didn't appear to be a suicide of, you know, when we think of suicide in that way, it was more of a medical thing. I mean, I'm sure he probably would have called Dr. Kevorkian and asked him to come over if if that was possible instead. But it was quite a shock through the Aspen area from what I understand when it happened and quite a shock even to his, his wife at the time, because I don't think she even knew that he was going to do that, but you can see that in the documentary, other things worth checking out, I would say in terms of books. And we did talk about a few of them. I would say 
read Hell's Angels, read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. If you have an interest in politics and have some working knowledge of the Nixon-McGovern back and forth, you know, Campaign Trail 72 is pretty good. The short vignettes and things like Great Shark Hunt, his letters collections are pretty funny. And then the one that I really like that is one of his later books is called The Kingdom of Fear. And The Kingdom of Fear is sort of a half autobiography and half essay book that is written after September 11th. And I think it came out in 03 or 04. It was him basically kind of chronicling his life in a way while at the same time in between putting in these essays of things that he had recently been thinking about. His essay that he wrote, actually, he was writing a sports column from about the late 90s until his death for ESPN. And there's a book called Hey Rube that's mostly his sports columns from those. And then you can get a lot of them online. But his essay on September 11th, after September 11th happened, is just so spot on. Like, if you read it now, he basically tells you what's going to happen. He was that attuned to basically sort of politics and the American psyche that I think he just knocks it out of the park with that essay. For me, I really enjoy his writing. I think his writing works better for me in columns and in short essays, but you know, I think that's part of the reason why I never sat down to read The Rum Diary was I just didn't feel that maybe a full novel was going to work. Maybe someone can prove me wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. When I read a good column by him, even now, you know, and he's been gone now 10 years, it's, it's, it's great stuff. Okay, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. This isn't like any procedure that we've ever done before. Well, that's why I'm here, Doc. Your facial muscles, tendons, bone structure, everything. It was destroyed. Evil has many faces. You look fantastic, brother. Yes. Darkness has many allies. This deal is going down tonight. Raise your army. But there is only one who punishes them all. This is just the beginning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's play a game. Do I be with you, Frank? Sometimes I'd like to get my hands on God. You're fighting a war. That's right, we're back next week talking about one of those Marvel movies, one that might have slipped under the radar for you, Punisher Warzone. Join us as we're talking to director Lexi Alexander. You do not want to miss it. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest, Anita Thompson, for coming on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. When you get a chance, head on over to iTunes, give us a review and a rating, and please share the show with your friends, family, favorite lizards via social media. And remember... The projection booth hates to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity, but they definitely have worked for us.
Our room service tabs had been running somewhere between $29 and $36 per hour for 48 consecutive hours. Incredible. How could it happen? But by the time I asked this question, there was no one around to answer. That rotten attorney of mine, Dr. Gonzo, was gone. He must have sensed trouble. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.